Welcome to Funding the Dream, the number one podcast for the number one crowdfunding platform, Kickstarter. Now here's your host, Richard Bliss. Welcome to the show. I'm Richard Bliss, the host. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for the success that we've had with the show as we've um, been launching an episode every uh, about every other day, three times a week over the last uh, month or two, and we've had tremendous outpouring of success and uh, feedback from all of you. Thank you very much. If you do want to reach out and have any contact with me, you can reach me at Richard Bliss on Twitter. That's probably the best way to get hold of me in this today, this age of social media and how we can stay in touch that way. But again, always, I want to say thank you very much for listening. Thank you for your support on Patreon. And thank you for the support of those sponsors and those guests that we've had on the show. Speaking of guests, my guest today has not run a Kickstarter campaign. But that's not why he's on the show. Why he's on the show is because so many of you out there are in the board game space and have questions about your first-time designer, first-time publisher, first-time Kickstarter, first-time game manufacturer, first-time a lot of things, or your second time. My guest has been in the industry for 14 years running a successful game company, putting out title one title after another every year, and I wanted him to come on the show to talk about that and then talk about the future and how Kickstarter is impacting his company. So I want to welcome Kurt Covert from Smirk and Dagger Games. Kurt, thanks for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Oh, you're welcome. Hey, you are, uh, you've been in the industry quite a few years. Your company is called Smirk and Dagger Games. And so tell us a little bit about the game company and kind of what got you started in the industry i think like uh like everyone um i was a a huge game fan and um part of uh, my enjoyment was um i I actually was crafting expansions to other people's games uh that occurred to me that so i could just share them with with my friends at one point uh there was a um, kind of a collectible uh game that uh, went out of print way too soon and um so a bunch of uh, of us online, you know, got together and created the expansion for it because the designers had released all the all the data on it, and we just created uh, the span expansion, and then it created another one, and it, it was essentially took up like two years of my life just having fun creating this this content. And someone said, "Well, geez, why don't after all that time, why, why don't you just make your own games?" And I honestly never considered it before. It was just something I just did for fun. Um, so when I started to actually think about it, um, I started doing, uh, some, some designs and, um, I'm a graphic artist by, by trade. So I, you know, they all looked gorgeous, but they all just played horribly. It was like a uh, four player solitaire that we were playing. Um, and I did three games like that and I, I scratched my head and I said, man, it is much harder to come up with a, an original game than it is to, uh, to build on someone else's genius. So, um, what I ended up doing was really analyzing what types of games I really loved and therefore what kind of games I might be able to produce best. And I had an absolute love of, um, of take that games, you know, backstabby stuff. Um, and, uh, Tom Jolly's whiz war was one of the, the games that, that really inspired me, uh, way back when. And, um, so I said, well, yeah, I'm also, I'm a marketer in my day job. Um, and as I was looking around at all the different companies and their mission statements, and they were saying, you know, well, you know, we make fun games for everyone. And I said, well, that's not really much of a mission statement. That's, that's it doesn't mean anything. So I started looking at a couple, a couple of people that, you know, 
were actually making statements about their companies. And so I looked at Twilight Creations, and they were all about zombies and horror. And um, I looked at Looney Labs and their kind sure. of hippie vibe. Right. And I looked at James Ernest, and he had uh, cheap-ass games at that time where, you know, he, he figured, well, you don't, you don't need all the pawns and dice. You have those things. Here's just what you need for the game. And because of that, I'll sell it to you for five bucks. You can get a whole bunch of games. Right. And so what you did, well, even in the name of your game, Smirk and Dagger, right, that sounds like you picked that theme and then started to zero in on that. That's exactly right. So I, I started with the name Smirk and Dagger, which I, I always envisioned was like, that's the, that's the, the actual moment of, that makes take that game delicious. It's, it's knowing that you, you've got them lined up in your sights, and it's that little smile that you get just before you let them have it. And so that, so for, for, that was, but you've been doing that now for 14 years. Yeah. Um, and, and each time finding a new way to, to let people, uh, misbehave at the game table. <laughs> and, so for 14 years, so Smirk and Dagger has been around for quite a while doing this, take that st- And I've played many of your games. Uh, my guest, Aldo, uh, Gatti, who's been on the show many times is a uh, good friend of mine. He uh, represents your games and I have played many of those games. Uh, Dread Curse is one that uh, a pirate version of that. Take that. Yeah. Um, the Dead Last. That was one that we've been playing. How many games? How many games does Smirk and Dagger have in its inventory? Uh, right now, about twenty-five. I think twenty-five games. And so, one of the things that over time, then that you've been successful at is you found your niche, you found your focus, and now when you come out with a game, you'll be able to put that out. Now you've put out. You, you, were, you and I were talking beforehand about a game a year. Um, over the last 14 years, but that has started to pick up speed, right? Uh, quite significantly, in fact, yeah. Um, so for for the first, say, 11 years, it was one game a year. Now, obviously, I, I have a, a day job, so this is something I do from 9 to midnight every day. Um, and it is every day. Right. Um, there, there's no way to, to actually do this and not have it consume every spare moment that you've got. Um, and so one game a year was the, the speed I was comfortable with. I was, I was growing, I was putting out games. I was getting known in the industry. Um, I was becoming, you know, a, a small, but, but known part of the industry. And, and I was very comfortable with that. But in the last, I don't know, say five years, um, I have started to look at the, the future and saying, yeah, you know, I would love to be able to do this full time at some point. Um, but you can't do that with one game a year, nor even five games a year. Uh, it often takes six to eight to 10 to 12. Um, and that means that um, I really have to ramp up. So I, I've changed um, a lot of how I source games, uh, create games and, uh, and, and market them, uh, trying to, to grow in a shorter span of time now. Well, that's interesting that you bring up the, this point that you need to have multiple games in your stable to be able to be successful as a game company. Now, because my audience might listen and say, no, wait a minute, you see a game that goes out there and they raise hundreds of thousands of dollars and they've made it, haven't they? You put one game out there, it raised $100,000. You do another game, it maybe does three, dollars $400,000. Isn't that enough to be successful with a game company um, every once in a while putting out a, ga- a game like that? What's your well, answer Well, it depends that? how you... It depends how you gauge success. Um, so if your if your plan is to is to work in the game industry full time, then that's clearly a no. You've got to feed the beast 
every single day. Um, and this is, of course, you know, an industry now where um, the shelf life of a game, you know, is a lot shorter than it used to be. Oh, that's a valid um, point. And there's you know, so many games out there. Yeah, uh, there's so many games and um, so many new ones behind it. So there used to be a long tail, you know, a, a game that you created, you might sell pretty consistently for, for five years. And now, now uh, it's so crowded out there and everyone's focused on the new things that great games go for a year and then become slightly forgotten about. Well, that's interesting because in your case, you have had 14 years of building up a brand, 14 years of uh, becoming well-known in the industry for the type of games that you put out. When a game comes out from Smirk and Dagger, you have a good idea for that. And the long tail really has been your plan because I think, uh, well, you had the game um, Dead Last that's come out. And that's done quite well. I think you were sharing with me the units on that. That one has done – how well did that one do the past year? Well, let's see. So we launched in Origins, and uh, since Origins, we've moved uh, 11,000 units of that. And that's quite honestly the biggest release we've ever had for a for a year one game. So uh, it was a phenomenal success from, from my point of view. No, that, but, that, um, but that was and, no Kickstarter, right? Oh, right. Yeah, uh, no, no Kickstarter. Um, and quite honestly, not even a lot of uh, pre-buzz um, was generated. And um, it was something that... Uh, took off, I think, based on the power of the game, the reviews that we got on it, um, and and word of mouth. Um, and so we printed, at first, 6,000 units, and those were gone in about two months. Um, so we printed again, and every time you reprint, it's a little bit of a risk because you don't know exactly you know, how many of those are going to continue to sell. So we printed another 5,000, and those uh, sold... A little bit more slowly, but you know, um, I think we've maybe got 300 left or so right now. But again, now the question is, do I reprint it? And if I do, how many? Because if I'm only selling now even 50 a month, well, I'm going to sit on a whole lot of units for a whole lot of years, and um, it starts costing you money to hold that stock. So. It does. It's interesting. Uh, you know, what this dilemma you're going through, I think all game designers are going through it. Uh, I had Max Temkin on, the, uh, on my show. Max is one of the creators of Cards Against Humanity. And sure. when he, he said when they shipped their 4,000th copy of the game, he felt everybody on the planet who wanted a copy had a copy. <laughs> <laughs> right? And so at some point, you're like, okay, how, how big is this? And are we? There's there. It's making it tough because now we're getting into charted, uncharted territory where we don't have historical data that we can use to pro- do a projection because so many games are flooding the market. So you have competition. There's so much noise. Yet there are so many more people now looking at games that never had looked at it before. It, Cards Against Humanity being an example, Exploding Kittens being an example. People have flooded into this market. Gamers who are looking at these games, looking for something similar. And having played Dead Last, there is a bit of a a similar vibe that goes with an Exploding Kittens or a Cards Against Humanity. A bit of an irreverence, a bit of a a stab-your-neighbor-in-the-back type thing, which is a theme that seems to be working with you. But as you do that, you also said you came out with a game that wasn't a stab your uh, stab your buddy, and that's an interesting story. What what happened with that? Well, I almost came out with it. Actually. Oh, good good point. Um, good. There point. was yeah. <laughs> there there was a uh, a game that uh, we had produced in our line. It was called uh, Sutaku, um, and when I had originally designed the game, 
um, it was, um, I was actually pitching uh, Hasbro um, with a different version of it. And um, it was a design I really, really liked, and I thought it had some really broad appeal. Um, and uh, it was just a, a great pusher luck dice game where you're stacking up dice and um, had, uh, I gave it uh, this very, uh, you know, uh, Japanese flavor to it. Um, but um, when I brought it to the Gamma Trade Show, um, you know, I was thinking that because, you know, we, we specialize in backstabbing games, I was like, well, with a pusher luck game, you can kind of screw yourself. So maybe, maybe that's good enough. But the first thing I got from every retailer who came to see it was, well, where's the dagger in this smirk and dagger game? And all of a sudden I realized, oh my goodness, I've got, I've built the brand so, so strongly that people are going to get confused and like disappointed that I'm not delivering the backstab. No, that's so inter- I stopped the press. Okay. You actually stopped yeah, the press. I stopped the press. Said we're not we're not putting the game out and like I, it is. Well, not like it is. So I had to quickly come up with you know what is something that will give the backstab but is not going to raise the price because I already had had pre sold the the you know uh, what the game was going to cost out to, to to everyone. So I was like, so I, I put in. It really was only like thirteen cards that would allow uh, people to to screw with uh, each other when they were you know stacking their dice. And just that small element was enough to people say, oh, okay, now it's a smirk and dagger game. <laughs> Got it. You know, that's interesting because I bring up a point that sometimes as we, as we get into that niche and our brand becomes very well known, the audience begins to own the brand more than we do. It's a situation where, um, you know, and as I continue to grow, um, if I'm going to produce, you know, 12 games uh, a year, it's going to be very difficult for me to maintain them all as backstabbing games. So, um, so it kind of handcuffs me a little bit as, as strong a brand as it is, as much as it was a real benefit for me and my company, because it's, if you liked one of my games, chances are you're going to like most of my games. And that's why I get so many repeat customers. But at this point, my growth is, is going to be a little hampered. So now I've actually, I've been considering doing a, uh, a subtitle, uh, Smirk and Laughter, which I can say is, yeah, it's, it's part, of our, part of our company, but these are going to be games that don't have the backstabbing element, just so I can continue to grow uh, the way I, I feel I need to. I think that's a very valid point. When we look at traditional marketing, the, the need for focus is so important. And as you move forward, some of these projects that you're coming out with will benefit directly from that focus on a particular niche. The audience comes to expect, your, your fans come to expect a certain thing from you. And it's very difficult to give them to say, hey, we cover everybody in the, in the, in the market because then you're competing against everybody. And there is so much to compete Correct. against right now. But when you say, look, we are the premier game company when it comes to uh, take that – the um, stab your neighbor, that backstabbing element. If you like that, that is the game we like to, you know, you're going to like our company. That ability, right, you, nobody else can really take that from you. Is there, is there a company that's known as well as you are for that uh, take that element? No, I don't think so. There, there are other companies who have, who have defined themselves um, and, and are, are known in certain ways, you know, Looney Labs, you know, and their hippie vibe, you know, that 
they're they're known for that, and people you know, are attracted to them for that reason. Um, but no, I don't think anyone has uh, has landed on a, a backstab kind of thing. You know, I think that. And then there's also this possibility, this evergreen content. As uh, the, so, this would be my prediction because uh, we're going to, in the last few minutes here, talk about you have some projects. You do have some projects coming to Kickstarter, but my prediction is, um, Kurt, that your uh, Smirk and Dagger brand, as you take this to Kickstarter, as you expose this to even a bigger audience of backers out there, is going to do very well because of that theme, because you've stayed, stayed focused on that. So I know that as you talk about smirk and laughter, which is a great idea, I think that you've got some spectacular success in, the, in, in store for you because, and here's where I'm coming from, Cards Against Humanity is a bit of that type of approach, that irreverence, that type of attitude that so many people are playing. The very audience that would be drawn to a Cards Against Humanity mm-hmm. is going to be drawn to Dead Last. They're going to like that game. They're going to like that element, and they're going to like that ability just to stick it to each other. Family-friendly, sitting around with the kids. You know, the kids will like to stick it to dad, but really what you're going for is, as you just said, that look in their eye, and then they just nail somebody. That really – there is a market that has expanded as your company has been growing, and it's almost like the two have come together at the perfect opportunity. So I think that you're going to continue to do very well. My advice, without being a professional on publishing, is that uh, Deadlast is going to continue to do well. So you be sure to tell Aldo that that Richard said, okay, we can go print 100,000 copies. No, no, no. We we don't want to say that. No, no. But 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 I think well, thank you. But it would be nice to see um, f- see if there was a f- way that you could find Dead Last even maybe um, a variation or an expansion or something to put that on Kickstarter to expand and grow that um, that 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 footprint for that. But here we go. We got only a couple more minutes, and so I wanted to ask you about what you do have coming out for Kickstarter because you said you have a project coming out this summer. Uh, I do. I I finally um, you know honestly I. I dragged my feet going to Kickstarter, and one of the the reasons was that, um, well, obviously Kickstarter did not exist when I started the company, and so I put my my house on second mortgage to pay for my first game, and I paid that debt over several years uh, trying to dig myself out of that that hole. So I don't recommend it, and I would have jumped on Kickstarter immediately if it existed at the time when I launched. Um. But I didn't go to Kickstarter because by the time it did come out, um, my games supported themselves, and I didn't need to to ask people for money to to help fund my game. So I felt it was almost a little disingenuous for me to have used the platform, which would be great for anyone who was starting out. And I saw a lot of companies, you know, start going over there. Some established companies. And I was like, oh, some, I, and I could see some people were like, hey, you really don't need to do this, um, and a lot of them said, yeah, well, we kind of do, actually. And, you know, we're going to take advantage of, of uh, you know, all the benefits that the Kickstarter has to offer. And well, again, I dragged my heels because because uh, retailers were concerned about those initial sales and were upset um, that, you know, it was all going direct to consumer. So, again, I, I, I avoided it for a very long time. And so, and we're out of time, but uh, this this fall, before oh. this fall, we have... I think you called it Tower of Madness, a Cthulhu Kerplunk crossover, I guess was one way we could look at that. Imagine uh, you've got a Kerplunk tower with, uh, it's shaped like a clock tower with tentacles coming out all over the place. Push your luck dice game where if you perform your investigations poorly, you have to draw a tentacle and any marbles will fall out effectively. So you're uh, you're solving unspeakable uh, uh, 
cars without losing your marbles. Great. And that's the whole construct of the game. Yeah. Well, we look forward to that. So people – Kurt, I want to say thank you very much for being on the show. This has been great to talk, kind of talk about focus and, and your journey to uh, success here with your game company. Thank you for joining me. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to Funding the Dream on Kickstarter. My guest has been Kurt Covert with Smirk and Dagger Games. We've been talking about branding, uh, positioning, the focus of his game company and how it's been successful for him and his future as he starts to move into Kickstarter. Hopefully you found something interesting and entertaining. Also, Kurt and I are going to spend a few minutes here just having a chat afterwards. If you're a Patreon backer, you'll be able to t- listen to that uh, conversation. Thanks for listening. Thanks for being a supporter. Thanks for the, f- uh, the fan reach out that you've done. Uh, I have certainly enjoyed... Uh, the the renaissance of the show and the feedback you've all given me so continue to to do that and i'm looking forward looking forward to hearing from you thanks for listening take care